Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah, the last like bad day I went on, I just immediately wrote a short story about it and then sold that for money. So I was like, all right, maybe I'll just do that every time. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Love Lives, a podcast from The Independent where I, Olivia Petter, will be speaking to different guests about the loves of their lives. Today I am so excited to be joined by one of my favourite writers, the brilliant Megan Nolan. Her debut novel, Acts of Desperation, was published to widespread critical acclaim. Now she's back with an excellent new novel, Ordinary Human Failings, and I am so excited to talk to her all about it as well as hearing about the loves of her life. So, welcome Megan, how are you? Thank you, I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming. I'm honestly, like I said, I'm such a huge fan of your work and it was such a treat to read such a different book from you after absolutely falling in love with your first, but it's still equally as compelling and just completely different and so absorbing. Um, So could you start us off by just describing what Ordinary Human Failings is about? So, the present of the novel is 1990 in London and there's a child who's found dead on a council estate and there's a reporter who's following this story is the sort of um the top line where you where you enter the book and then there's an irish family who are immigrants who've um, arrived in england about 10 years before this uh the child of whom um is suspected of having something to do with this this crime um and then the tabloid reporter following this story and then kind of um, goes back into the three family members' lives in Ireland through previous decades, which is sort of an attempt to give wider context to the troubles in the family that exist in the present um, and sort of how they've come to this point. Um, and yeah, the, the, I suppose the tabloid journalist is sort of the, the centre point that they, they're sort of brought together by. Yeah, yeah, he's a great character and you can really... There are so many people just reading in my mind, as obviously as a journalist, like knowing so many people that he's like a proper hack in every single yeah. way. Um, and I know that the plot from this book came from a single line in a book that you were reading about a serial killer. Yeah. Tell us about that and how that kind of inspired the story. I've been reading, there's a Scottish, um, he's a, he writes novels as well, but he's, he writes amazing nonfiction called Gordon Byrne. Um, and he wrote this book called Somebody's Husband, Somebody's Son which is about Peter Sutcliffe, um, the Yorkshire Ripper. Uh, it's a really incredible book. Like, I don't know, he's, he's written, he's written, you know, I read quite a lot of true crime. Quite a lot of it obviously is, even if it's compelling, it's quite trashy or like not substantial, whereas Gordon Burns true crime is like really substantial and he goes and spends his time in these places. And um, anyway, so yeah, it's a really brilliant book and there's quite a throwaway line in it. They don't, he doesn't go into the, details of what happened but um he mentions at one point that a journalist or sorry rather a newspaper i don't know whether it was like um a a team of journalists or a single journalist um had approached family members of peter sutcliffe's he would have been by and large quite working class alcoholic people um and approached them and basically offered them a situation in exchange for information from them which was that they would be put up in a hotel uh, and kind of given free reign in terms of alcohol, given some pocket money, 
and in exchange they agree to be kind of sequestered you know so they're not allowed to give um any any info to other journalists and I, you just mentioned that that was a setup, and I don't know how long it went on in reality or anything like that. Um, but it, it was just a very striking image, this hotel, and so that was the kind of basis of of ordinary human failings. Was was that was the kind of first single image was a hotel with this family being kept, um, and and yeah, again, I don't know in reality how long that situation lasted. Um, and obviously, in my book, it, that contemporary part is only actually I think three days or something. But that kind of pressure cooker atmosphere of the mm. hotel and them all being cooped up was very striking to me. Yeah. So I kind of took that and ran with it. It's yeah. a really interesting concept. It's so unique. And I, it's, it's interesting what you said, how in the book it was sort of just glazed over as like an insignificant yeah. detail. But then, when I, well, of course, when you unpack it, there's so much that could happen within that context. And it's interesting what you said about true crime as well, because I... I'm not into true crime yeah. whatsoever. Like I know I have friends who are obsessed with it and it's all they read, it's all they watch and all they want to do is, you know, listen to murderer stories and all that kind of thing. Yeah. But what you've done with this novel is, as the title suggests, it's a story about the human condition, but it's just within the framework of this kind of true crime story. Mm. And was that kind of also an intentional thing for you? Like you didn't want to kind of I guess, stick to the typical version of the genre and I guess the more mainstream version that we're so used to digesting. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, because, yeah, I, I've always, like, I, I remember being 14 or something and, and getting my first, you know, Ted Bundy book. And, like, <laughs> it's not my main thing that I enjoy reading at all, but but it's definitely something yeah. I've read fairly consistently over the years. So I'm pretty familiar with both true crime and, and fiction. Um, and yeah, obviously, I got, the older I got and the more interested in journalism I became, the more complex that whole thing began mm. to seem to me. Um, and then I think it was probably in 2017, I started writing a column for the New Statesman. And my first ever column for them was about this uh, book that I'd read called The Sleep of Reason, a um, nonfiction book about the James Bulger trial and, and media response afterwards. And that was sort of a big... Um, shock to read I hadn't because I'm Irish I hadn't been as familiar as probably a lot of people just kind of culturally would be here with that case mm. and so all of the media response was actually really shocking to me and, and that they were named at all and and it's a really brilliant subtle book about about all those um, nuances that happened after the fact and then also there's a there was this channel for um, I think it was probably in 2008 or something like that there was a program called Boy A which was adapted from a play by an Irish playwright called Marco Rowe and that was a kind of fictionalized imagining of um, it wasn't actually the James Bulger case, but it was a, it was an imagining of a case similar to that of of the um, the perpetrator once they're being released as an adult. Yeah. So there's a couple of things like that that I over the years had absorbed and kind of become interested in how much more complex these things are than you tend to see them in headlines. And yeah. and so yeah, I think that a couple, a couple of key kind of things like that came up over the years, and then also I had. I, I was never a staffer in, in a newspaper, but I spent time um, usually just like covering a desk for a couple of weeks at a time. But it meant that I, I, I did spend time in quite a lot of different newspapers. Um, and that that was, you know, intriguing. And <laughs> and and like, for instance, like did training days with I never worked for a tabloid, but I did training days with people who were working for tabloids when I was in a certain building. Mm -hmm. And I remember being very struck by like what we're talking about, Tom, mm -hmm. like I met 
this kid, you know, he really was a kid. He was like 20 on a placement or whatever. And he's like, like so green and enthusiastic and really sweet. Mm. And I was just going like, oh, I hope he's not going to go bad. <laughs> I know. Because it is, it is a weird mentality, isn't it? To like, you know, hear about the murder of a child and be thrilled by yeah, it. Yeah, and be really excited. Yeah, because yeah. your first thought is, oh my God, I've got a scoop. And yeah. it's like, that's a very weird psychology to explore. Totally, yeah. <laughs> um, I know that you said in an interview that you kind of wanted to explore how ordinary people can become capable of doing extraordinary things in this book, which is such an interesting phrase because I think within this context, because normally we apply that to huge success and positive outcomes and, um, you know, kind of rags to riches stories, I guess. But within the framework of the book, it's about, you know, that extraordinary thing is an extraordinary act of violence. Yeah. And... What was it that led you to kind of want to, I guess, explore that? And how how did you also go about, I guess, getting into the mindset of that? Because that's also a very dark place mm. to go to. You've Having read the book, we'll know there's like a close, close third on three of the family members where you really get to see things from their perspective, from Carmel and Richie and John's perspectives. And, you know, initially I was like, should I try and do that with the child as well? Mm. But it just... I, it just didn't feel right. And I don't, I think it's really, really hard to pull off um, portraying a child's perspective in fiction. Yeah. Like, I just think it can go so badly wrong if you get it even a little bit like sentimental or like corny yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I knew I, I didn't want to go really dark and like actually be in the moment with her when, when this act of violence is happening. It just felt like crude or something. Mm. And also because a lot of the book is about the unknowability of these moments that she has in, in that time with the other child. There's, you know, there's a, lot of commonality between most children who are capable of committing violent acts there's like quite a lot of um, crossover in how their childhoods began and I had read um, there's a really great couple of books by a writer called Gita Sereni um, who again was a very good non-fiction writer about uh, there's a girl who in the 60s was a child she was a child who killed two, two kids called Mary Bell and Gita Sereni covered that situation when it was happening but then also when she was an adult mm -hmm. And it's really striking how much you, how, how re repetitive the childhood circumstances are with, with children who do these things. Yeah. And, and so I read quite a lot about, about not just children who've killed, but about children who behave in, you know, aggressive, confrontational ways. And, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I spent, I spent a couple of months reading tabloid journalist memoirs and then reading about um, the kind of psychology behind how children can, can do this. Um, so, yeah, there was... And you don't want to get too pres prescriptive or like um, mm. prosaic about that and say, okay, this, this, this has to happen for a child to do this. Yeah. Obviously, it differs in every situation, but there are, you know, fairly basic core things that a child needs that a lot of children don't get, mm. unfortunately. And then some of those children, for a variety of circumstances, tend to be violent. And so, yeah, I was kind of interested in trying to trying to you know without condemning the mother show how like some of that early childhood yeah not even abuse but but just neglect or benign neglect almost like yeah. you know removal from from the situation can contribute to to the ability to hurt others yeah and that comes across really well because like like you said you don't blame the mother and you don't blame any of the family members and I think yeah that's because you see everything from their perspective as well mm -hmm. but this goes back to another question that I wanted to ask you about something that you said about how we're very quick to 
explain away bad behavior with one reason or one kind of moment from someone's childhood or someone's past. And, and I think it's not just in terms of bad behavior in terms of crimes, but also just bad behavior within romantic relationships. Mm. I think that is so common yeah. now when we talk about attachment theory and um, you know all of this like so-called therapy speak that we're very quick to yeah. use when we talk about contemporary relationships. And it's like, oh, he's a narcissist and he's emotionally abusive yeah. and they're gaslighting me. And these terms are very useful when used correctly, but I think there's this kind of TikTokification of yeah. these terms where they're being so loosely applied and we're just so quick to to jump to something because I think it's really validating to feel like we have a singular explanation when there's something that we can't make sense of within yeah. the context of a romantic relationship. Do you think that that is 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 kind of similar to, to what you set out to do with this book in terms of trying not to I guess, have that kind of reductive approach? And, and do, you, do you agree that that is something that mm. we're doing in romantic relationships? And how do we move away from that? Because I don't think it's that helpful. <laughs> no, I totally agree, yeah. Um, and, and I've been like so guilty of that in the past. And I feel like there's, you know, obviously so much has changed in how we talk about relationships in the last five years even. Mm. And I think there was a point in this like weird cultural war era, like maybe five or six years ago where I was a lot more guilty of like, that sort of reductive uh, yeah. oh God, way too. of speaking. Me too. It's very seductive yeah. not to get caught into that. And I feel like, yeah, I feel like things have moved on in the culture a bit or like are starting to move on right now anyway. And yeah, I don't know. It's like very easy to dehumanize people by speaking that mm. way. Yeah, def definitely with the book. Because um, I think it would be, so I think there was, there, was, there was an article in The New Yorker not that long ago about like trauma narratives, about um, like criticizing in fiction mostly, but also I think in just in writing about like taking one trauma and using it to explain everything yeah. a person experiences. And um, I think it would have been, I would, I would have hated to just go, okay, Lucy, the child had a bad childhood. That's why she did X, Y, Z, which is why I wanted the, the, the whole family story. And also then, yeah, as, as we said a moment ago, to not, um, to not go, Lucy's mom was evil and that's why she's evil, you know, and that there's obviously so much so much cruelty in a way but a lot of it is is like i don't know if you call it unintentional in terms of the family's background but but a lot of pain which is just then kind of wrapped in silence for them all and and ends up hurting a lot of people without active cruelty um and yeah so i think it was important to not have like one explaining factor as you say um and I, I, yeah i think that would be also da it's dangerous to explain anyone's like bad or or troubling behavior because yeah then it's well it's, you know a it's kind of an ability to excuse it in a way or for the person to excuse it and and also yeah it's just a bit yeah de yeah dehumanizing because it's I don't know people are so complex like every single person is so has so much and, and like to, to a degree it's quite scary if you actually think about it and like that's why we're not really like why the internet isn't actually like our brains are not ready for it because it's yeah. it's impossible to like really grasp how how like subtle and complex every single person is and if you're revealed to that many people it's sort of impossible yeah well I yeah. was about to say like that is all I agree with you but you can't put that in like a 20 second TikTok video yeah that people are gonna <laughs> share with their friends let's talk about acts of desperation um for those who haven't read your first novel can you introduce it to us so acts of desperation is a novel um that came out in 2021, which is about, uh, it's told, a story told in the first person by an unnamed narrator who's a young woman in Dublin 
mostly in Dublin, um, kind of flits a little bit between locations then. Um, and she, when we when we come to know her, she's I think 22 at the beginning, and she's very much adrift in her life. She's dropped out of university, working kind of menial jobs, doesn't really have any centre to her life. Um, she's drinking a lot, going out a lot, sort of flailing around her life and looking for some meaning. Uh, and she finds it in this relationship. She falls sort of obsessively in love with this man called Kieran, who she meets um, at a gallery opening and then becomes embroiled in this uh, in this obsessive relationship where she she is very much the desire the the one pursuing him and he's you know interested but very cold um and won't give her any of the validation and and kind of recipro- reciprocity that's mm. the word right um that she that she's seeking and this kind of goes on like that for a while and then um there's a kind of shift in dynamics in the book then about maybe halfway through where where some things change and the dynamic is if not flipped is is then gradually changed in a way that um, I think begins to reveal to her that this romantic love that she sort of based her entire worth and point of life around is is not going to be the thing that saves her and that this man is not going to be the thing that gives her meaning. Yeah, I mean, it's a really like astonishing book to read. And I'm actually, I'm so pleased that something like that has been so well received and has been so widely read because I think it's it's not the first thing you think of when you think of a sort of commercially successful book because it's mm. a story about a woman in an abusive relationship. And I'm really pleased that that story has been so widely kind of shared. Were you yeah. surprised at its success? Yeah, I was hugely surprised, yeah. Because um, I guess my background was, well, I'd, I obviously have a journalistic background, but but my creative work was kind of separate from that. and was always, um, you know, in fairly niche literary journals, a lot of the time I was doing like performances and art contexts and so always in quite, you know, like, and I was happy to do those things. Um, but all of which is to say that when I was trying to sell the book, I kind of thought to myself, okay, great, we'll get it with like a really small press or like even an art gallery we might produce like a text or something like that. Yeah. So I was not expecting it to be um, sold in a commercial way. So yeah, it was it was completely a shock to me. Yeah. And because it was so successful, I mean, you were interviewed loads about it and I... What I find so interesting, we know that it's no secret that, you know, female novelists are continually asked if their work is autobiographical because people don't seem to understand that women have an imagination. But I know one thing that you said that was interesting is that the narrator's feelings and emotions were partially based on you, but the events in the book are fictional, which I think is a very common experience for a lot of debut novelists. But I wonder what it was like for you talking about the book in that framework and being asked you know, how much of it was based on your own experiences because it's a very dark book. And I think what people maybe don't realize what they are essentially asking you by asking you that question is, have you been in an abusive relationship? Which is a very messed up thing to ask someone. Um, So what did you make of that? How much did that happen? How did you handle that? Yeah, it's funny one because quite a lot of people kind of preempted it by by saying that they weren't going to do that but then started doing it anyway you know they're kind of like so I bet you're getting a lot of that (laughs) Um, (laughs) but um so yeah I've always obviously been quite upfront about it would be insane if I was to try and like conceal that obviously the book is is like personal to me and also the biographical details of the character mirror mine very closely in terms of like age and where she lives and things like that and partially that was to do with like me not really feeling the confidence to write um, I don't mean this in a like self-derogatory way, but like a proper novel, like 
as in I didn't have a background in writing fiction so I think it felt a bit safer to like base some logistics on things that I felt authority over such as mm. location and even like again with the new novel I think I'd find it really hard to set a novel in a city I didn't once live in or spend yeah, time yeah, in yeah, yeah. things like that so that was partially why and then also just like I was interested in writing about these subjects that I had experienced myself um and you know the events while largely fictional of course there's like some things in the book that actually happened to me or like and I, by, by that I don't even mean like the really interesting stuff I mean you know like observations about people in Dublin or whatever mm. um, but then yeah when people would ask me about it I was like there's no real satisfying way to answer that question because literally unless I'd take you to the book and go that happened that didn't happen there's no real way to answer it you know I'm not going to break it down to that extreme degree because that just makes the book so boring as well yeah but I just wonder where that question even comes from because is it a lack of understanding about a novelist's process as a writer and in terms of how they're able to fictionalize things or whatever or within the particular story of this book is it a lack of understanding around like female trauma in a way that they feel like that they can ask things like that because yeah. I, I think I think it, it's true with lots of female novelists yeah, when yeah, they definitely. write about difficult subjects and and then are kind of expected just to answer answer questions yeah. about it. And I, another example is My Dark Vanessa. I don't know if you yeah, read that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember the author yes, of that Yes, that was book, awful, yeah. She had to issue a statement yeah. on her website saying, please stop asking me whether the story is based on me because it was a story about grooming. And yeah. It was, you know, it was very strange. That was it, awful, yeah. Yeah, and I found it really upsetting that she felt that she had to write, do yeah. that statement. Yeah, and in a way it's like, well, you know, I wrote a book to not have to exactly, say yeah. these things. Um, or to like specify certain things or use certain terms, you know, um, like a lot of the time also people want you to, well, you know, again, like, yeah, use specific terminology that's, while it, while it might be accurate, like factually accurate to call something that happened in the book X, Y, and Z, like there's a reason why I wrote the book rather than an article and yeah, yeah, yeah. want to explore those things in a, in a less like determined way. Um, but yeah, it was, it was mostly fine. Like I would say more people than I expected to were respectful of that. Um, and yet, occasionally, people were really blunt about about asking, like, "Have you been sexually assaulted?" And like, like quite literally, like someone asked me that while on like live on a recording, and I was just what? like, "Why do you think people aren't like?" I don't know. And she didn't think, seem to think she was being rude at well, all. That's as what. Well. That's what I mean. Clearly, she doesn't. Otherwise, no. she wouldn't ask you. And I'm like, why is it that we live <laughs> in a world where people think they can ask you that, particularly live? Yeah. I mean, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that sensitive is down my spine. So I'm writing, I'm writing, I said I wanted to ask you all this because I'm writing my own yes. novel now and I'm like, oh God, are people going to expect me to talk about that? Um, both of your books, um, both of your books also explore alcoholism. Yeah. And I know that you've said that in a small community where you grew up, you kind of really saw the effects of alcoholism and addiction. Is that, what, what was it about that that made you want to put that into your fiction? Because I think also alcoholism is another subject that is so widely misunderstood mm. um i think you know when we picture an alcoholic we picture someone waking up and downing a bottle of vodka mm. but it's so far from the reality yeah. and, and that's a problem because it stops people from recognizing yeah. their own alcoholic tendencies i think definitely they think they're so far removed um so is that something that kind of made you want to to write about it and explore the more kind of nuanced version of that yeah i think it's really hard to i've i've, I've often talked and written a little about this that like unless if you're still drinking if you're currently drinking it's basically impossible to talk about having a problem with alcohol like people really need you to have become sober if, 
to allow you to talk about it, mm. which I understand because it's so uncomfortable. Um, but I do think is a really dangerous thing that people feel that they have to be sober and dry before they can before yeah. they can even refer to the fact that they struggle with these things sometimes. Um, and yeah, I felt like when when I dropped out of college, I had a really bad period of like, and again, it wasn't like waking up in the morning and drinking, but just like going out every night and like, because I didn't have any structure to my life then, you know, if you have a job or you go to school or whatever, you kind of have a natural inbuilt limit. And when I didn't have that structure, I got quite scared by how easy it was to get carried away with drinking. And and yeah, as well, if you're young, it's like kind of feels like everyone's doing it, even though they're not maybe doing it to the yeah. same degree that you are. It's kind of easy to cover it over. So I have experience of being really frightened by that and like feeling like it might go really badly wrong or you might, you know, n- not know where to stop. Um, and And I still struggle with like periods of not, feeling completely in control of not just drinking, but with like lots of things in my life that I, d- I don't have a very good um, inbuilt stop button with lots of things. Um, and like sometimes that's work and that's not a bad thing, but sometimes it's things that are bad, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I just have a lot of sympathy for and time for people who suffer from um, reliance on substances. And, and, um, and I think, yeah, like the character of Richie in the new book, it, again, like starts with him just being a bit lost in his life and and not not I, I guess it's also easy to forget that like the reason people start to drink is because it is fun and like is a connector of people I kind of wanted to portray that a little bit with like him you know him before he kind of has this disastrous thing that happens because of his drinking the night begins in a really nice yeah. lovely way and then you know for a lot of people that would have been fine and they would have had that good time and been able to stop at a certain point and then obviously a lot of people are not able to stop at that certain point. Um, but yeah, it's something I care a lot about and like feel very personally about. And and yeah, there's obviously people um, that I've known in my life who suffered really horrendously with with that. And and yeah, I just I just would like people to to have a little bit. You know, I, I find it really gross when you'll see quite a lot on Twitter if someone's like. I don't know, trying to insult another person who they know to have a drinking problem. Like they're very easy to like use it as an insult and and like re- really be like disgusted by people who have these problems in a way that I find like really anti the generally progressive like vibe yeah. that they're trying to portray. People are very strange about drinking. I think they often. I think it's one of those things that is very hard for people not to project their own issues yeah. onto others with. So like you know, it's the, it's. I think it's one of the reasons why when someone you know, goes out for the night and doesn't want to drink because it makes them feel a certain way. And they, and you know, they're like, oh, why aren't you drinking tonight? And then it's a big deal because the other person is suddenly made to feel like threatened and feels like, oh, well, do you think like I'm an alcoholic? Yeah, I'm drinking. It's a really weird thing. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, okay, so the, the first love you chose is quite an obvious choice for a writer, but actually we haven't had this yet from any of the authors we've had on the show. So tell us why you've chosen reading fiction. Um, so yeah, thinking about my walk here that like... Uh, I was okay. So last night I was. Sometimes I, when I get into um, a stressy work mode, which I kind of have been the last couple of weeks, I can't concentrate on reading it very well at all, except for like the most functional or you know usually like a magazine article. But last night I read this book called Big Swiss. Have you come across that? Yeah. It's really good. Um, but yeah, just like a really juicy novel, mm-hmm. and um, and like read almost all of it in the bath in one sitting kind of thing. And I was just thinking about like when I was a kid. I was quite nervous. No, I wasn't like quite antisocial like I had friends, but I was quite socially anxious even when I was a really little kid and I like, didn't know how to behave in certain situations. And I just, yeah, I just found like being in the world quite tough and reading was like back then, you know, as an adult, you develop all these coping mechanisms, some of which are healthy and some of which are not, including drinking and all that stuff. And uh, but at the time, like my only coping mechanism was reading. So I just have this very like comfort comfort food relationship with, with reading fiction where if I felt really freaked out as a kid, I would just sort of hide and and that was the only thing that could completely take me out of it. Um, and yeah, then as an adult, obviously, like I, I kind of quite compulsively read fiction. Um, and if I'm stressed, uh, if I can like bring myself to try and concentrate, then reading fiction is the only like really wholesome stress buster that I have. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I was saying that like, um, I really love those like big kind of sprawling like birth to death novels. Um, like Somerset Maugham or like yeah. Dickens because they yeah I don't know it's like very satisfying to feel as like you do not actually feel in real life that that you can kind of have an overarching view of 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 life and have like some sense of narrative purpose which and really order. does not exist in life yeah yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> order and control yeah yeah I um I liked what you said when um and it's kind of touching what you said earlier about not having an internal stop button which I think is something that a lot of people can relate to but you, you said that it's you know probably one of the only healthy coping coping yeah. mechanisms that you have um but it does do some of what the unhealthy ones do by kind of letting you forget yourself but without the danger or guilt attached so I want to ask you why you think it's so important that we have that moment of respite where we can kind of like forget ourselves and Mm. step outside of ourselves and why the majority of the things that help us do that are so unhealthy Mm. Uh, aside from reading fiction yeah what what else is there and like exercise yeah like I mean again okay so partly partly what Acts of Desperation is about is like doing that with romance and And obviously in Act of Desperation, that's like portrayed as being a negative thing. But but obviously, it's not only a negative thing. And I, yeah, I find like, obviously, if you're falling in love or are in love, then that's like the ultimate <laughs> feeling of being able to escape yourself in, in a healthy, like joyous way. But on my own, yeah, I feel like reading and, and being with my friends, honestly, is like the only thing that if I, if I feel really overwhelmed, I, I just need to be with another person, whether that's through fiction or being with my friend or my partner or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, It's just about getting out of your own head. Yeah, and I'm not very good. Okay, I'm, I, I, well, I'm incredibly bad, rather, at, like, 
any sort of meditation or just so sitting with yourself like really bad and I'm trying to get a little bit better but no, I'm so bad at it. I've started doing acupuncture recently. Right. And one of the worst things about it is that you have to literally lie there for 30 minutes in right. silence with needles in you. Yes. And just lie there. <laughs> and, I'm, and and my mind is just going like into yeah. overdrive because I'm like, I should be relaxing. I should be relaxing. Yeah. There are needles in me. Oh my God, is one moving? I can't. Re- and you have to do that for 30 minutes and it is torture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just like last night trying to go to sleep, you know, just lying there for two hours being like, I, don't, I, need, yeah. I can't stop thinking, you know. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I really struggle with that. And, and I just find like it's not something I'm happy about necessarily but yeah basically being with a person is the only way that I can really guarantee to to escape that feeling yeah um but yeah I think I obviously it's such like a sensorily overwhelming world to live in at the moment and and because we're not so great at being alone because you know our attention spans are shot from living the way we do it's really hard to find yeah to like not need need a bit of like time out from from being overwhelmed by the world, but also not being able to like meditate necessarily. Yeah. I know. I wish I was one of those kind of wholesome, mellow people. Me too. Like, yeah. I'm just gonna go meditate. I'm really stressed <laughs> right now, and then come back to me and like, okay, I'm <laughs> like a butterfly. That's just not who I am. No. Um, to be honest, I don't know many writers that are like no. that. <laughs> I was just thinking. I was like, that's why I'm good at my job. Yeah. <laughs> that's why we're good at what we do. Um. Okay. Your second love is a family member. Tell us why you've chosen your dad. Um, so my dad and I are very close. Um, I'm close with all my family, but uh, my dad and I kind of have a special bond because um, I've got two older brothers um, who belong to my mum, but they've got a different dad to me. So I'm my dad's only kid, which just means that we spent a lot of time one on one when I was growing up. And even though I love all my family equally, we just have a kind of special bond um, that has to do with those kind of formative years spent just the two of us because um, my mum and dad split up when I was quite young. Um, so yeah, me and my dad probably, probably see each other, um, maybe like four times a year, but it's like definitely the highlight of my year getting to spend actual substantial time with him. A lot of the time it's just for a day or two, but at Christmas time, for instance, I always make sure to have like a full week where I can just like do nothing and walk around with him for a couple of days. Um, we're really, really close and like, like painfully close where it's like a big source of sadness in my life, just like worrying about him and like anticipating something bad happening to him you know yeah I yeah I have that with oh god this is sound ridiculous because I have that with my cat <laughs> but I do I love my cat as well it's like yeah. an unhealthy an unhealthy like attachment Just yeah that, exactly but, but you do you like kind of catastrophize yeah like preemptively sometimes. working through these things yeah yeah which is like obviously ridiculous because it's going to be awful no matter what happens like no matter how much you anticipate it yeah which I try to remember it's like this you're just wasting your time because it's going to be as bad no matter what you know yeah um but yeah so like it's painful as well but um he's definitely like um, you know I guess like a problem in my my life has often been that I feel very like weightless and like insubstantial in the world or like I don't know where to I don't feel like attached to things in in a way that I should maybe um and he's sort of the main foundational part of my life that I feel like if I'm really and as well because I've like moved around a lot in my adult life and and continue to move around a lot and you know, I'm not a very settled person in that way, which is obviously by choice more or less, but um, but that comes with a lot of downsides as well as positives. And I feel like my relationship with him is is like really crucial to me not feeling completely lost in the world mm. when, when I am sort of adrift in these ways. And you said that he's also a writer. Yeah, he's a, he writes plays and directs plays. Um, so yeah. Is that one of the main things that you think kind of bonds you together just from a kind of, I guess, intellectual point of view? Do you talk about writing? Yeah, we talk about work? our work. Um, 
mostly like sometimes about functional things as in like if one of us has a problem with a certain scene or whatever we'll discuss it a little bit but that's nice a lot of the time it's more about like you know he's very sensitive like me and and like suffers a lot with his work as I do and I don't mean that in like a tortured artist way I just mean like I think it's awful and like Mm. struggle to be able to show it to anyone and that kind of thing and you know we both like suffer with confidence quite a lot um so it's sort of yeah, like trying to bolster each other in that way more more so than anything functional. Um, but yeah, he's like, I mean, he was always very supportive of what I wanted to do, but also was like, you know, you're never going to make any money though. <laughs> so he was like trying to make me aware of the uh, functional yeah. downsides, but also like be, <laughs> he was like very supportive as well. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of the confidence with your writing, how was that different between the first book and the second book? Did you feel like that was an improvement with the second book? Um. Yes and no. So with the first one, because there were kind of no stakes, because there was no book deal or whatever, I just wrote it in my spare time and then we didn't, you know, show it to any editors until I'd finished it. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So there was like a bit of freedom in that because nobody was waiting for it. So I could take, I took like three years and Mm. just did it in my spare time. So that was like, it was scary still writing it. And like, I didn't feel like, oh, this is brilliant when I was writing it, but it also kind of didn't really feel like it mattered hugely. Not that it didn't matter, but like that, that if it went... If it if I, if we handed it in and it was bad, it's like all right, well, I'll just keep on working then. And yeah. whereas this one was was contracted, um, so it was a bit scarier in that way because I had a deadline, and also yeah, well, I'd never written full time before in that way, and I you know, and I still don't know this like, for the next one for instance, like is it you know you don't know if it's going to be possible to write a good novel in the time that you have allocated. Yeah, and there's no way to promise somebody that you will have you know. And your third love, I'm so pleased you've chosen this um, because as you said in your email, I think this is something that is getting pretty bad press at the moment. Um, tell me why you've chosen dating. Um, I've always been a huge dating fan. I mean, I came to it quite late as in like, I never did any online dating or anything like that until I came to London in 2015, mm-hmm. 16, something like that. Um, and I just found, I, I love meeting new people and it's like, I get a lot of pleasure and energy from random encounters. So this was like, oh wow, it's like very, very yeah. easy for me to experience that feeling, which in the past was like, I think that only happened to me rarely. I can now meet new people, you know, sometimes in hopes of finding a partner, but quite often just because it's like fun to meet new people. Yeah. Um, and yeah, obviously it does get quite a, quite a bad rap at the moment. And I do, I do, I, to give a free so, I do understand that like, if you're, very, very seriously looking for a partner, I can imagine it would be a lot more demoralizing than I've tended to experience it. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually, well, like I, let, I met my last serious partner on, on an app. So, I, you know, it has happened for me in that way, but quite often it's like more of a, not that I'm opposed to meeting somebody seriously, but it's, it's a little bit more haphazard than that. And it's a little bit more like frivolous than that for me. Um, and yeah, I don't know, I think, as well, when I went in, I spent quite a lot of time in New York over the last couple of years, and it's like a really fun way to see the city, basically, yeah. <laughs> and like meet people there, and um, and people there are like really casual about dating in a way that I really like. I and was about to say, I imagine it's very different. Yeah, it's just like really spontaneous and a little yeah. bit more fun, and um, and I just find it really. I mean, there have been times when I've like. When, when I've regretted going into situations like like say if you leave a serious relationship and then go straight into dating I found that quite painful because you have to like go into these like uh, online situations with the basic understanding that most people don't you're basically being not being seen as a full person on you know you're going into it with both of you not really 
perceiving the other as a full-rounded mm. human being. So if you're, if you're leaving like a loving relationship and going into that whole scenario, it can be a bit jarring to be yeah. like, wait, why aren't you being really, really nice to me? You know? Yeah, I think that is so interesting because it's that gap, isn't it? Between when you come out of a serious relationship and you come out of any kind of meaningful partnership and then you think, right, I'm just going to go and meet someone. I'm going to get on an app. And, and you, it's not that like, you know what you're doing. You know, you're on a dating app and you know that it's sort of like a yeah. game and whatever. But I think then the reality of, like you said, sitting down to meet someone and it's so flippant and it's so yeah. casual. And then you might never hear from them yeah, again. Exactly. They might it's quite hard to get used to. Yeah. It's really hard. And it's like the the kind of the fall <laughs> from yeah, grace, so yeah. to speak, is <laughs> so dramatic. Yeah. Um, how do you if you if you have like a bad or disappointing date now, how do you handle that? Do you kind of just write it off as a funny story or do you just try and move on as quickly as you can, and like compartmentalize it? Yeah, the last like bad date I went on I just immediately wrote a short story about it and then sold that for money so I was like all right maybe I'll just do that every time this is my life in New York this is how it's gonna go I'll just go on a lot of bad dates and then write short stories about them <laughs> okay genius I'm gonna do that as well <laughs> okay that's great um for people that aren't writers <laughs> how do you how do you handle it because how do you not I guess because it is such a demoralizing experience. Yeah. You've had so many disappointing dates or, you know, you can talk yeah. to someone on an app and have such great chemistry, yeah, yeah. such great conversation, and then you meet them in real life and it's it's just zero. It's just there's no spark, there's nothing. Yeah. How how do you pick yourself back up from that or like just motivate yourself to to keep trying, whether it's on an app or yeah. not, but just how do you stop yourself from spiraling into that place where you think this is pointless, I'm just going to be alone forever, which is yeah. unfortunately the dark, traumatic places that your brain of goes course. to. Um, I had some really good advice. I mean, it's very simple advice, but kind of needed to hear it from a good friend of mine um, after he's in New York. And then I'd, I'd gone there in 2020, just out of a relationship and uh, long term, very, you know, loving, happy relationship. And we had an amicable breakup, but obviously it was upsetting. And um, And then I was going on these dates, many of which were really fun. And like, I'm still actually really close friends with several of the guys that I went on a couple That's of so dates nice. with back then. Um, but then obviously, yeah, like went on a bunch of shitty ones as well. And then I went around to my friend Orlando, who's like my oldest friend. He's an old friend one from Ireland, but he lives in New York now and uh, has been there for a long time. And um, kind of went to his house and was like complaining about these feelings and like how bad it felt to go on some date or other. And he was like, well, yeah, again, like what we were just talking about, basically, he was like, well, of course you feel bad because you're like, going from being around the person who loved you to being around this person yeah. who doesn't. And actually you should just be with people who love you right now, like me, you know, like, yeah. like you, and actually that was the only thing that made me feel better after those things was like, oh, I'll just go and be with people who love me, like my friends. And yeah. and I know that sounds like very, very trite and like oh, your friends are all you need, which is like not actually how no, I feel. That's but also, That's also not what you're saying, but that's a really, that's a really good point, I think, just generally. Yeah, to, like if you're in need of a bit of care, that's yeah. totally fair. And like you should access that in a different way and like yeah. save the dating for just like, some frivolous fun when you're ready for that you know yeah I think you just have to accept that if you're looking for kind of instant care and love and like warmth you're just not gonna get no. that on hinge no it's not gonna be very attractive if you no. are either <laughs> that's it for today thank you so much for listening you can listen to all episodes of Love Lives on all podcast platforms you can also watch us on independent TV and all social media platforms and all connected devices I will see you soon bye Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? 
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 